we're going to be talking this morning about dealing with despair. And that song that we just sang, Living by Faith, talks a lot about the ways that we can deal with despair. It talks about trusting in God and about looking forward to ultimate, the ultimate salvation. And we're going to be talking about that a little bit this morning. But I want to start by describing despair to you. And I would rather describe it than just go with the definition that you can find by a quick Google search. So what I found was that despair is defined as a loss, a total loss of hope, and I find that fully inadequate in explaining what despair is. And so I decided I would build my own definition for despair. So the first component to despair is the feeling that your best efforts are totally useless. And no matter how hard you try or how creatively you attempt to solve a problem or complete a certain task, you're going to be unsuccessful. This could be something as simple as trying to remember what time a store closes, or it could be something as critical as having to come up with money to pay for your bills that are due at the end of the month. And that leads me into my second component of despair, the feeling that what you are trying to complete has significance. See, when I can't remember what time the Walmart pharmacy closes, I don't despair, because it doesn't matter that much. But whenever my car is broken down on the side of the road, and my wife and son are baking in the heat of the summer in, that, in this car that I can't get to start, now I'm going to start to despair. And the most crippling despair combines these two feelings with other instances where we feel we, may, we will fail and that that failure will be significant. So let's say that now not only is my car broken down on the side of the road, but I don't have the money to pay a tow truck to come and get me in, with all the credit cards that I have and the money that's in my wallet, which is zero, and the money that's in my bank account, which is $5. I have no money to pay a tow truck to come and get me. And even if I did... If I, I could choose to pay the tow truck or I could choose to pay my mortgage or my electric bill or something like that, I just, I can't afford to move a muscle at this point. On top of that, when I do finally make it back home, however it is that I do that, I have to go to work in the morning and I'm going to catch it from my boss because I'm going to fail to meet a deadline. There's just no way that I can do it. On top of that, I think the, the kid is getting sick. I don't know what it is. It might be the flu. It's flu season. All of these things combining together create the recipe for sinking into deep despair. Perhaps even depression. I don't know if despair and depression go hand in hand or if one leads to the other but they're very similar in the way that they affect our lives and how we feel that we are doing physically and spiritually. We can feel really spiritually weak when we're in a moment when we feel like we've totally failed in our earthly duties. 
it can become very easy to think, well, let me just indulge in this sin because I know it's going to feel really good and it's going to alleviate some of this despair. So my objective for this lesson is to look at what Scripture has to say about dealing with despair. I want to try to answer the questions, how should we deal with despair? Are there any tricks or techniques that we can use to avoid despair in the first place? And I want to start by reading some scriptures that I think are going to show us some principles that will help us avoid or get through despair. The first of these principles is that we have a heavenly hope. Despair, as I, as I mentioned earlier, comes from the feeling of fear over the failures that we might experience here on this earth. Despair over uh, failing to do something now. But a heavenly hope reminds us that there's going to come something in the future that's going to render earthly failures totally irrelevant. Two scriptures speak directly to this hope. The first is 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 through 9. And it says this, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. And so what's the perspective there that we need to have? What, what's this treasure that we have in earthen vessels? The treasure is that the excellency of the power may be of God. Maybe of something beyond us, greater than us. And because we have this treasure, what does Paul go on to say? We are troubled, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. When we, realizes that the, when we realize that the consequences of physical failure are insignificant compared to our heavenly hope, then our despair can be relieved. What we're looking forward to is also described by John in Revelation 21, verses 1 and 4. It's coming towards the end of the Revelation. John has been shown many things, and Jesus has revealed to him that the churches in Asia were going to come under intense persecution. It was probably going to be a situation where a lot of Christians were going to be in extreme despair. And what's one of the things that John leaves those, church, leave those churches with? He says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And God shall, uh, skipping down to verse 4, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And I want to say that I recognize that it's impossible for us to stop caring about our physical life. Now, even as I was, as we were coming to church this morning, I was thinking about going back to work on Monday. I was thinking about I'm not looking forward to having to do that. I was thinking about the bills that are going to be coming due in uh, in the next few weeks, and thinking about how uh, 
we've got some holidays coming up and some birthdays that we're going to be celebrating, and I want to be able to give gifts to my loved ones, and I don't necessarily know where that money is going to come from. So we can get distracted very easily from our heavenly hope. But what should always be in the back, in the back of our minds, even when we're being distracted, is that eventually those troubles are going to be removed from us. As long as we can remain faithful, we will eventually come to be in a place where there's no more worries and no more cares. God's going to remove that from us one of these days. So let's now think about what we could try and do in this life to remove some of those distractions from us, to, to get past those distractions. Because I, I, I like to think about our relationship with the idea that we have a heavenly hope, like being cast away in an ocean. And when, when you're in the ocean, you're struggling to stay afloat. And being able to keep your head above water under your own power is kind of like trying to remember to look forward to heaven. It's easy to do when everything's okay. It's easy to keep my head above water when there are no waves, when there's no storm. But as soon as the storms come and the waves get high and the ocean gets rough, then I get pushed underwater and it's much more difficult for me to keep my head up. Fortunately, we have, some, we have a life jacket of sorts that's going to bring us back to the surface at some point. We can trust in God. Scripture tells us that God will deliver us from our despair, that he's not going to let us drown in the sea of life. One passage that speaks to this is Romans chapter 8, verse 28, which says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. And what, what shouldn't happen is we get confused by this passage. You know, Emily had a friend send her a message many years ago, and she tried to quote Romans 8, 28. The friend did. She said, If all things are good for those that love God, then why is my life so bad? And that, I hope, demonstrates a misunderstanding of this passage. Because what Paul's not saying is that it's going to be a walk in a rose garden for Christians. That everything is going to be all well and good and that nothing is ever going to go wrong for us. In fact, Jesus told his disciples that the exact opposite was going to be true. In Matthew chapter 10, and verse 22, Jesus said, And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. He said that there would be endurance in following Jesus. He said that we would be hated by the world. And so, what are we supposed to take from these two passages. All things are going to work together for good at the same time as we're going to be hated by the world. 
what we need to remember is not to blame God for our circumstances. We don't need to blame God for failing in a promise that he did not make. Rather, we should trust that he's going to use this opportunity of despair to work a good in our life. I think that we have an opportunity to look to one of the writings of David in Psalm 34 and that we should trust that this is going to work true in our lives as well. Psalm 34 verses 17 through 19 says, The righteous cry, and the Lord heareth, and delivereth them out of all their troubles. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. What I'm trying to say with all this is that it's all right to feel despair. It's all right to feel beaten down and broken. It's even all right to scream out to God that you don't know how you're going to make it through the next day, the next week, or perhaps even the next hour, that things on this earth are so bad that you need deliverance. These are all appropriate responses, and God is going to hear us when we cry out to him in this way. What we need to avoid is the temptation to blame God for our despair. It's not his fault, after all, that we got distracted by our earthly cares and overcome with thorns, if you will, even if it was just for a moment. So, God is going to deliver us from despair. This is a tremendous, uh, this is tremendous knowledge to me. But it's not always a silver bullet to conquer our earthly problems. So how can we, when we find ourselves drowning in despair, access God's deliverance? And the simple answer is to approach Him in prayer. This is how we access God as Christians for whatever we need on a day-to-day basis. Scripture speaks often about using prayer to deal with despair. But there's one thing that I think we ought to keep at the forefront of our minds when we think about going to God in prayer, in times of despair especially, but in general as well. Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 18, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. And Paul is going to write these words, and everything give thanks in multiple places in one other that we're going to look at this morning. Think about what it means to give thanks in everything. Not to give thanks for everything, but in everything. What does that mean? Well, I tried to paint a picture of an extreme moment of despair at the beginning of this lesson, so let's try and walk back through that and think about how would I be thankful in that moment? How would I be thankful in the moment that my car won't start? Maybe I could be thankful for all of the miles that we've been able to drive it so far. I could be thankful that we didn't have a wreck, that we were able to just get off of the road in one piece. I could be thankful that I had the money in the first place to buy that car. If I'm so blessed, perhaps I can also be thankful that there's a second car waiting at home. And just because this car doesn't run doesn't mean we're not going to be able to get anywhere in the future. I mentioned 
facing a deadline at work that we're not going to be able to meet, feeling despair over that. How can I be thankful in that moment? Perhaps I can be thankful that I have the skills to perform that job, that I was able to get hired to perform that job in the first place, that I've been able to work it so far, and that it has rewarded me with earthly material, that it's rewarded me in such a way that I've been able to purchase everything that I've been blessed with in my life. I can be thankful for all of those things. How about bills piling up? There's a bill come due for electricity or the mortgage or the water or the credit cards, whatever. How can I be thankful in those moments? Maybe I can be thankful that I've been able to enjoy those blessings to this point, that I've been able to purchase the electricity and the water, that I had the purchasing power of those credit cards to buy various things, even though it's come to a point where I'm now having trouble. I can still be thankful that I enjoyed those things when I purchased them. Perhaps I could even be thankful that electricity is something considered so basic by today's standards in this country that it's readily available. That just because I miss this payment doesn't mean I will miss the next payment. It, it, and it may not even mean that my electricity gets shut off right away. Even if it does get shut off, it can be turned on quite simply. There's a lot of things, what I'm trying to say is that there's a lot of things to be thankful for over the things that we are feeling despair about. And starting our petition to God about our despair with thanksgiving can be perfect for getting us in a mindset of gratitude rather than a mindset of entitlement. Rather than thinking, this despair is unjust and I need to be delivered from it, we should be thinking, I've got so much that I don't deserve. Maybe God will just give me one more. As a brief aside, I wanted to mention an exercise that I hope you'll we'll all try sometime. The next time you're doing something that's going to take you about 15 minutes, whatever it is, doing the dishes, go for a walk, driving to work, whatever, try to pray to God and thank him for every minuscule thing that is positive in your life. I think that you'll find that you run out of time well before you run out of stuff to be thankful for. Now, we're in the right mindset. We're in a moment of despair, so we've gone to God and we've prayed and been thankful for all of the things surrounding this moment of despair that are positive. Now let's talk about praying through a moment of despair. Paul wrote to the church at Philippi in chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. First of all, careful, in verse 6, doesn't mean the same thing that we use it for today. Be careful of that 90 degree turn on a 60 mile an hour road is not the same as be careful for nothing. What Paul is saying is, don't be full of care for anything. And how did Paul advise the Philippians to be careful for nothing? He said through prayer. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests 
be made known unto God. And what's going to happen as a result of that? The peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds. And what does that not say? Paul does not say that the reason for your despair is going to be removed. If you pray through a moment of despair over the car not starting, the car is probably still not going to start. If you pray through a moment of despair when your bank account is empty, it's probably not going to have a million dollars in it at the end of the prayer. But what is going to come? The peace of God which passeth all understanding. Suddenly, what seemed to be a mountain moments ago is probably not going to feel like a mountain anymore. Peter also gave some advice concerning prayer in, when he wrote his first uh, epistle to the churches. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 7-8, through 8, he said, Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Something interesting about this, these two verses in particular, I've always recognized the value of verse 8. In fact, I built an entire lesson around just verse 8 because it's very powerful advice to avoid temptation from the devil. But couple that with verse 7. Verse 7 is a really popular verse among the, the denominational churches. Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. How are we to avoid our adversary, the devil? By being sober and being vigilant and, back up one more verse, casting all your care upon him. I want you to think about, if you've ever experienced a moment of despair, I want you to try and remember what your spiritual strength was like in that moment. I mentioned earlier that in a moment of despair, we might be tempted to indulge ourselves in sin that is pleasurable because it will relieve some of that despair. Does that remind you of a moment in your life when you were in despair? I mean, think also about the moments when you were the most tempted, when you felt the most spiritually weak. Was it perhaps a moment where you were extremely distracted by the physical cares of your life? Was it a moment where you felt peak despair. This is what Peter is really warning us about when he says, your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking him he may devour. Finally, I want to look at a passage from Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 and 16. Hebrews is all about how much better Jesus is than the old law. And in, verse, in chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, the writer tells us, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Remember in the Old Testament there was a high priest and the children of Israel had to go to the high priest to have sacrifices made for their sins. So you can imagine having to go tell somebody else your troubles. Perhaps you can even imagine them not being able to understand what you're going through and feeling like that's a reason not to go talk to them. 
but the Hebrew writer says that our high priest was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He's telling us that Jesus gets it. Jesus knows what you're going through. And when the Hebrews had to go to their high priests to tell them about their sin and to make sacrifices, they ran the risk of the high priest not understanding what they were going through and not being able to help with that sin. But what we have in Jesus is a high priest that knows exactly what it is that you're going through, knows how hard it is for you to come and talk about it. So when we go to God in prayer, and we know that we have Jesus interceding on our behalf, we know that we have an advocate that can tell God exactly what we're going through, that can explain why it is that we're in despair in this moment, and why it is that we need help with our despair. I don't mean to say that it's a cure-all for our despair. But it is an incredibly powerful tool for the Christian dealing with despair. Now, we won't be reading the passages of these stories that I want to talk about for the remainder of our study But I want to look at a few examples of individuals that are recorded in scriptures that I think deal with despair and how they responded to those moments. I just happened to uh, stumble across an article on the internet where somebody said, if you want to do a study about disappointment, look at these people. And I read the story of Naomi from the book of Ruth, and I thought, Naomi wasn't disappointed, y'all. Naomi was in despair. If you read the story of Naomi, as I mentioned, it's in the book of Ruth, and it's in the first chapter. Naomi's husband goes into a foreign country, and she goes with him, and their two sons. Their sons, the two sons get married, and then all the men die. So it's Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, and Naomi decides she's going home, and Ruth goes with her, And Naomi gets back home and people recognize her. And they say, isn't that Naomi? Now it turns out Naomi in the Hebrew meant pleasant. And Naomi hears people calling her pleasant. And she says, don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter because God is against me. If that doesn't sound like someone in despair, I don't know of of much better an example. Naomi was ready to renounce her own name because her despair over the loss of her family was so great. But if you continue to read the book of Ruth, what ends up happening? Ruth goes and finds a husband. Naomi helps her with that courtship. Ruth gets married and they have a child and Naomi is now blessed with a new family. She's been delivered from her despair. Remember, her despair was over the loss of her family, and now she has a new one. God delivered her from that despair, even though Naomi was bitter towards God. 
So that's an example of someone who handled despair poorly. And now I want to look at David in 1 Samuel chapter 30. This is an interesting story that I, uh, I couldn't remember reading. I've endeavored to read a lot of the Bible sometimes, but I don't always remember everything that I read. So 1 Samuel chapter 30, the Amalekites invade Israel. They burn down a specific town and carry off all the women. And David and his army comes by, and apparently a lot of the women there were the wives of David's soldiers. Apparently David also had a couple of wives in that town that had been captured by the Amalekites. And his soldiers say, it's time to be rid of David. So they're going to kill him. And David realizes this, and he realizes his wives are gone. And what does David do? It's recorded that David goes to God in prayer. And David had a unique relationship with God, so God tells David what to do. He tells him to go run down the Amalekites. And God gives them into David's hand, and they rescue all of the women who'd been taken captive. So David's in a moment of despair. How does he handle it different from Naomi? Rather than be bitter towards God, David realizes that God is where he's going to get deliverance from this moment of despair. Two more characters that I want to look at. These from the New Testament. And they're around, they orbit the death of Jesus in these moments. Think about Judas. When would Judas have been in a moment of despair? Now, um, Dad mentioned that he doesn't think that Judas thought Jesus was going to get captured. And I've always remembered that, um, that line from one of his lessons. Because Judas walked with Jesus through nearly the entire ministry. Judas saw the miracles that Jesus performed. He saw Jesus just sort of get away from crowds that were set on killing him. But Judas was also the money guy. He handled the finances of the group. And scripture tells us that he skimmed off the top what he didn't think the group would miss. He enriched himself off the purse of Jesus. So when the time comes that Judas thinks he can make a killing off of Jesus and his miraculous powers, he's going to tell the high priests, I know where you can get Jesus if you'll send a mob of guys to this place at this time. What are you going to give me? And they give him 30 pieces of silver. I reckon that Judas thought, I can get all this money and I can still follow Jesus and get to see all of this stuff that he does. I can keep skimming off the top of the purses of the disciples. Because how does he betray Jesus? He tells the mob, I'm going to go embrace one of these guys. That's Jesus. Go get him. And he goes up to Jesus and says, Hail, Master, and he kisses him. Now, why didn't he just walk up with the mob in tow and says, Get him? It seems to me like Judas thought, I can have my cake and eat it too. So what happens then? Jesus gets arrested. Jesus goes before the high priests. The high priests take Jesus to the Roman governor to have him executed. And Judas realizes 
that he can't have his cake and eat it too. And he realizes that what he had did, done was wrong. And so he, he thinks that he can fix it. He takes the silver back to the chief priests and he says, the guy that I betrayed was innocent. I need to give you this money back. Well, the chief priests have what they want. They don't care about the money. Judas realizes he can't make it right. But he's so caught up in the world, so entangled in earthly distractions, that what does he do? The guy that has walked with Jesus for his entire ministry, that's seen all of the miracles and heard all of the teaching and seen everything that Jesus has done, goes and hangs himself over his betrayal. In Judas's moment of despair, he's so entangled with the world that he can't get himself out of it. He can't see that his salvation is not in the world, that his deliverance from despair is not in the world. Similarly, think about Peter. When was Peter in a moment of despair? You think Peter was in a moment of despair when he renounced Jesus three times? You, know, you might remember that Peter told Jesus that he was ready to die for Jesus. Uh, the Gospels record that one of the disciples pulls out a sword and strikes off the ear of a servant, and I think that it, everybody just realizes, hey, that's Peter. Peter's ready to fight. Peter's ready to die. But Jesus says, it's not time for you to fight and die for me. And so Peter leaves with the rest of the disciples. Now he comes, comes back around. He wants to know what's going on. So he's at the, t- the house of the chief priest when they've got P- Jesus on that mock trial. And what does he do? What does Peter do? He denies Jesus three times. One of the Gospels records that on the third denial, the rooster crows and Peter looks across the room and makes eye contact with Jesus. I don't think I've ever been in that sort of situation where I stabbed a friend in the back and then turned and and they're standing right behind me, aren't they? Type situations. You think Peter was in despair? The scripture records it. Peter goes out and weeps bitterly. I can see myself in that situation sobbing uncontrollably while begging God to forgive me. I know scripture doesn't record Peter praying in that moment. I hope you'll forgive me for thinking that that's not an unreasonable stretch. So Peter and Judas, in a similar situation, have both similarly betrayed Jesus. One is so tangled in the world that he can't get himself out of it and kills himself. And the other, what does he do? He eventually goes on to be the first evangelist. Goes on to be a pioneer of evangelism. So we've got these examples of people that were in situations of great despair. 
we read about some people that were consumed by their despair because their focus was not on the eternal. Their focus was not on God and Jesus. We read these examples and we've seen that a couple of people failed in their perspective, fell into despair, and failed to recognize that God was going to deliver them from that despair. But a couple of examples that did remember that, that remembered that the place to go when you're in despair is to God, to pray for that deliverance. We read one explicit example of David, who, when he was in despair, remembered that the the way to access God and his deliverance from despair is through prayer. Thank you for listening to today's sermon podcast. If you'd like to know more about this subject or any other Bible topic, send us a message at our Facebook page, The Church of Christ, Wheeler Area.